Look, we're continuing our series. Uh, Jonathan kicked off for us last week this thing about rebuilding, finding faith mm. in the rubble. And um, I'm going to, uh, let me see if I can make this work. Yes, look at that. So this is part two. I'm calling it Providence and Politics, Esther's Decision and Ours. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, just wanted to help us get our bearings ready. Um, and I thought this might be useful. So, so Jonathan's done the first bit, the kind of the first three chapters of Ezra, but that's a little little chunk that goes from Ezra one six, all about this guy Zerubbabel taking uh, people back. Um, so, so uh, yeah, he's uh, but but it's one of these four series, and just to kind of put it into perspective, just in terms of the timeline, so. Imagine the fourth in this series. Imagine, imagine this was a story about New Zealand, right? And it was in four parts. So you'd probably say part four would cover the period, um, where the, which is kind of Nehemiah on there, it would cover the period probably a bit like 2005 through to 2023 to, to today, okay? So that would be the part four. So I wanted to give you a, a sense of the sweep of time that's happening, how all these things fit together. And we've not gone on to that, but yet we've started... Um, started at the first bit so so how far before that final bit was Jonathan talking about what would it be in in New Zealand time well it would be like talking about 1910 so just before the first world war um, and that's really the time so way back then uh, that first uh, return that Jonathan was talking about the exiles you know this group of about you know a group probably of around about probably the capacity of Eden Park, right, about 50,000 people um, who are returning. Um, not that many people of the Israelites, probably about one in every 30, right? There's a good couple of million. So it's, it's about 50,000 who are kind of coming. But they're making their way back to a ruined city. Um, but it's okay that it's a, it's a, it's a small group because what, it, what the scripture says is it's everyone whose heart God had moved. So that's important, right? It wasn't everybody because lots of people had settled in Persia and in Babylon and they were living their lives and you know, make, making, th making things go and running their businesses and all that. But actually God moved the hearts of some people to do something and they had the opportunity to do it. Um, and Jonathan talked about the joy and the grief that was intermingled when they rebuilt the altar and you know, they were establishing the foundation of the temple. Just They'd gone back to that city that was just desolate and they were just starting and they were starting with the house of God and it's like oh that's part one we just can't go but you can see that's like it's like it's basically like a hundred years isn't it between those the, those times so, so so what about the other bits then well look the um when we um, the, the third bit of the story to give you the perspective is is way way after that so it's about it's like the year 1991 so when we go through the book of Ezra, we get to kind of, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, we suddenly leap loads and loads of years, right? And so there's other, there's other stuff. We're not going to tell you about that today, but that will be another time we'll talk about Ezra, who was another one of the key people at the time. And that really talks about what, what happened when he was in, in what's called the second return. It's interesting, there were three exiles of the Israelites into, 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 into exile, and there were three returns kind of interesting how that works but anyway that's uh, the three parts that are all about what happened re-establishing the, the the city of God and the, the house of God in a place that was just broken down right we're now going to do part two which is um, 
which is kind of like the period 1966 to 76, okay? So, there's a, so if you think about it, it's kind of quite a long time after. Imagine, yeah, the first bit is a bit like, you know, the First World War and the Depression, and then we jump almost to the time that, you know, man was on the moon, you know, and the time of Kennedy and the time of, you know, the Beatles and all of that kind of stuff, right? So we've, so this is a really big jump in time, okay? It's, and, 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 I, and I mention that because for us, it's like we flip a page, right? And it's just like, well, I read that page, and now here's the next thing that happens. But no, 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 no. It's like a generation. It's like a whole passing of time. And that's a, that's a thing in itself, isn't it? So, so, and that's the point, right? This is about the big sweep of history. And this series is a bit about making history and being part of history. So we're going to fast forward 50 years from what Johnny spoke about last, uh, last, last uh, week. And... Um, Esther is is the, the way I'd like to describe it is almost like you know sometimes you have a you have a plot running and someone says meanwhile and then you go back to oh what's happening to that? so this is the meanwhile what what's happening back for the people who didn't go what had happened to them during that time so um, now they say of course a week is a long time in politics well a lot can happen in fifty years and um, there'd been four changes of king okay so the king Cyrus who the proclamation saying you guys can go and re-establish, uh, re-establish stuff in, in Jerusalem. He'd reigned, he'd moved on. The person after him reigned, moved on. The person after him reigned, moved on. So we were kind of four king, kings down the track. So let's look a little bit at what happens. Um, so it's a bit like a series, right? And I'm going to talk to you. This would be like, a, like on Netflix. You would have, the Book of Esther would be like a 10-part series on Netflix, I reckon. And... Um, uh, this is one of the historical books. And one of the interesting things, right, is that in the Jewish Bible, the history books, there isn't a separate category called history. There is the law and there is the prophets. And the prophets, there are two kinds of prophets. Pro- prophets where the main thing is with their words. And we, that's what we think about books of prophets. And then there is prophetic acts because God is acting in history and that is his voice speaking. God working it. So, so the history is actually, as far as, uh, as far as Jewish thinking goes, that's that's prophecy. That's actually the word of God. And the word, and, and 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 so, just as prophetic books are the word of God, so are are the history books in the Old Testament, like these ones we're studying. Now, look, just to say before we get into it, there's one, the, the, there's a couple of keys really, um, but probably the one most important key about reading Old Testament history is this: God is the hero. Okay, all the other protagonists. Whenever you're reading Old Testament history, some it's, it's not like the good people are amazing and they're perfect examples to follow, and the bad people are despicable, right? All of the characters are flawed. They're all a mixture. Sometimes they get things right. Sometimes they get things wrong. Sometimes they act with good motive. Sometimes they act with bad motive. There are things we can learn, but ultimately, the only person we can look to as a pure example of what it's like to uh, love God and live for God is Jesus Christ. He's the only right example and all other bits of history are mixtures. So always remember it's God that's a hero, not the protagonist, right? Anyhow, so let's look at what happens. I'm just going to give you a little, little kind of talk through this uh, book because we haven't got time to read all the kind of 12 chapters you'll be pleased to know. Um, so the first thing we start off, um, and, and if you're in this reading, we start off with this amazing, amazing king. He is absolutely opulent. He's got stuff made of gold. He's throwing lavish feasts. I mean, he is seriously, seriously the ultra wealthy guy. But at the same time, 
the first chapter is all about him getting absolutely huffy because he asked the queen to kind of come and show everyone how beautiful she is. And she says, no, I don't want to. And he's like, well, right, okay, right, you can't be queen anymore. And he's like, oh, well, if, if somebody says no to the king, then, you know, lots of women will start saying no and having opinions of the owner. We can't have that. So it's a bit misogynistic. You probably read that first chapter. You think, ooh, this is very different to today. And you're right, you'd be right. And uh, but sure enough, so so anyway, he kind of out with that, out with that queen, Queen Vashti, no longer there. So what happens next is he says, okay, right, well, we better have an amazing like empire-wide beauty contest. I want to find who are the most beautiful people because I want I want the most beautiful person to be my next wife. Right now, he's he's got a harem, he's got a huge number of concubines, but he only has one wife at a time. Okay, um, so for the time, that was kind of quite moderate, modest, I got to say, but you know, different from today. Anyhow. So what happens is um, there is this contest and we come across this young woman called Esther, right? Now, she's being looked after by her cousin, Mordecai. I think she might be an orphan. I can't quite remember that. I'll look at James. Um, uh, so, but anyhow, bottom line is she's quite a looker, right? And it says she's quite a looker. She's also quite shapely. And um, lo and behold, she catches the attention of the of the people who are going around and holding these various kind of regional kind of things, beauty contests. So from all of the millions and millions of people across, lo and behold, she wins this competition. So actually she gets to be uh, the wife of King Xerxes, this rather unstable, slightly emotional, a little bit all over the place, but fabulously wealthy king. Okay, so that's what happens. But here's the thing. She can't really be herself because the, the, the Israelites are... Um, they're, a, they're a minority, right, in, a, in an empire. And when you're a minority in a, in a colonized place, we know a lot about that in, 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 in this world. We know a lot about that. You know, the country I'm from was part of perpetuating that. We know a lot about that in New Zealand. Actually, things can be very challenging for you if you're a minority in a colonized situation. So, so actually, she keeps her identity secret. Mordecai says, don't, don't say that you're a Jew, basically. And um, so she wins, but she hides. But the next thing that happens, chapter two, is this. Mordecai is out and he's at the city gates. And lo and behold, he hears. So she's, she's in the palace and, you know, kind of being with a king and hanging out and all this stuff. Although it doesn't get to see him very often, I've got to say. And, you know, a lot of big kind of beauty routines, all this kind of stuff. It's all very, all very different from our times. Anyway, um, what happens is that Mordecai overhears a couple of soldiers talking about bumping off the king. So he has a choice there. What am I going to do about that? So he goes, he gets message, gets a message through. And um, basically, he rumbles a conspiracy. So, um, and, and that's, that's a really good thing, right? So f as far as, so Esther makes sure that the king knows that was Mordecai did that. They, those guys were going to knock, knock you off. But, so anyway, of course, they get, they get um, arrested and they get, strung up for treason and the rest of it. Um, but the thing is, you think, oh, that's fantastic. Well, what would be the great reward? Well, the great reward is this. The king, slightly hot-headed, whatever he is, completely forgets about it, moves on to the next thing. So nothing happens, really. <laughs> then chapter three comes. Now, um, Mordecai is not really a guy who likes to kind of, you know, He's not very subservient, I've got to say. And uh, lo and behold, there's another another guy whose star is going through. This is a bit like this is a bit like kind of beehive politics and someone whose star is in the ascendancy, right? So he's like the Hammond's like the, the great new star, and lo and behold, 
he kind of gets the king to say, yeah, yeah, people should you know, bow down to you and, you know, kind of uh, salute you and, you know, kind of uh, generally show you a lot of deference. Well, actually, a lot of people go around, oh, yes, yes, of course we're going to do that. Everybody's, everybody's kind of, you know, uh, cozying up to the person they think has got power. And lo and behold, he comes to Mordecai and Mordecai's like, yeah, all right, bro. No real bill. He's not going to bow down to him. He's not bothered. It's just like, no, he's just some other guy. Well, this guy gets a little bit, you know, there are sort of, I think you can see there was a fairly extreme reaction in chapter one with that ruler, right? Well, actually, Hammond turns out to be cut from the same cloth because his sort of feeling, like, if someone's been a bit disrespectful to him, his feeling was like, well, why don't I find a way to exterminate everybody who is related to this person across the whole kingdom? Why don't I exterminate a whole race? Wouldn't that be a good way to get back at that guy who disrespected me a bit? So that feels a little bit extreme. You think it is? It is. It is extreme. But it's what happens. So, and here's the other thing we learn about that, right? Haman um, goes along to the king and says, okay, look, if I gave you like a load of money, would I like, be okay to like kind of wipe out this group of subjects that's in you? about a couple of million of them. Would that be okay? And the king's like, yeah, do you know what? Whatever, you know, keep your money. That's fine, but do what you like. So he just does not give a stuff about the minorities in his empire. He's so different from Cyrus, who was a very tolerant king, that he just doesn't care. So what kind of amazing situation is this in? And you know, To me, th- this is a really interesting book, right? Because firstly, you will not h- read the word God. God is not mentioned in this book. Faith, faith is not mentioned in this book. Prayer is not mentioned in this book, right? This is history playing out in a very godless culture and society where disproportionate, you know, things happen and people plot and they do terrible things to one another. So this is a pretty, pretty amazing environment to find yourself in if you're Esther. You know, this is not like a lovely, homely kind of place. It's, a, you know, it's, this is swimming with the sharks, really. So, then we get to chapter four, and uh, Mordecai um, finds uh, he- hears about this. So, so what happens with uh, with with Haman is what he does is he basically says, "Look, thanks, King. So great. We'll we'll get we'll put your proclamation out there. We'll send it round that says in eleven months' time there is going to be a genocide day, and on that day, everybody who's an Israelite." Basically, if anyone in the kingdom can basically attack anyone who's an Israelite, and the Israelites can't fight back. So they will be literally exterminated on this day, 11 months from now. And the clock starts ticking. So, the next chapter, um, Esther gets a message to Mordecai and says, look, this is what's happening. And of course, he's absolutely just beside himself. Um, and I'm going to uh, read a little bit of, about what this happened. Right, So... Um, so this guy goes out, one of Esther's messengers, goes out to Mordecai in the open square in the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that happened to him, um, and uh, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews and gave him a copy of the edict, so a law had been passed for their annihilation. And um, uh, it had been published in the capital city, uh, and, and he, sh- he said, show this to Esther and explain it to her and urge her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So he goes back and he reports to Esther what Mordecai said, 
And then she instructed to say to Mordecai, look, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who, who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he be put to death. And the only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. In other words, I'm not going to get another invitation. And how this works is if I go uninvited, then actually, as a rule, that really amazing volatile king basically just says, yep, kill them. So because he's like, you know, I'll, I'll see people when I want to, not when they want to. So it will be the height of impudence to go and see him. So basically she's saying, saying to Mordecai, look, this, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This is like super dangerous. I don't really see what we can do about this thing. And it's terrible that our people are going to be annihilated. But what can I do? Then Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai. He sent back this answer. He said this, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So Esther has a choice now. She says, she sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So this is an amazing situation where she's come to a view that for the sake of her people, She'll try, even if it means laying down her life. And we know, we know a lot. Jesus said, didn't he? Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. It just as Jesus died and paid the price to me that we could live, so Esther was faced with this decision, do I lay down my life in the hope that I can achieve something? So it's pretty amazing, right? But anyway, so you think, oh, is it going to happen then? So it starts off chapter five, the next chapter, we kind of fast forward in the Netflix and lo and behold, she's throwing a banquet and it's all very nice and she invites Hammond, the guy who's the enemy who's, who's uh, uh, caused this law to be forward, says he can come to the banquet as well. So there's, there's her and there's Hammond and there's the king and it's all lovely and having a feast and she doesn't do anything. So, okay, that's fine. So now, well, we'll go away and we'll... Maybe have another feast another time. So he comes back in again, has another feast, and she doesn't do anything. And again, and you think, oh, well, this is this is take this is this is taking rather a while. I mean, okay, they've got eleven months, right? Meanwhile, meanwhile, Hammond is is still amazingly mad with Mordecai and thinks, you know what, I can't wait eleven months. So he builds a walking great wooden structure for gallows and says, you know what, let's go and hang the guy. Let's just go get him. So immediately, Mordecai is now in immediate danger. What can we do? So it's like, and Esther doesn't know this. So she doesn't know that Mordecai is about to get it. Right, her cousin is about to get it done. Except the next twist in the chapter, chapter six, is this. Kind of rather, you know, unstable king, rich dude guy, can't sleep. So he can't sleep, so he has someone bring the, the history books about his early... He wants to hear about his highlight reel from earlier in his reign, all the great things he's done, right? So oh, that's what I do when I can't sleep. Just people tell me how great I am. That's great. So, so he brings them. And when he... When he uh, and the amazing thing is when he reads the, 
when, or when he hears what's, um, what happened, all of a sudden he hears about Mordecai, the guy who saved him from the plot several years earlier. Oh, yeah. I wonder what, what happened to that guy. What did we do for him when he did that? And, the king said, and his assistant said, we did nothing for him, Lord. Uh, nothing. So he's like, oh, okay. So meanwhile, he summons Haman. And Haman thinks that because he's the favoured one. He thinks, oh, yes, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the king's favour now. And there's this great story where he kind of comes back in and says, ah. Um, oh. And the king says, I was just thinking about what we should do for someone who kind of, you know, who'd been really great and really served well. And so Haman thinks, oh, that's nice of him for me. That's great. What you do well? I think you might put him on a nice horse. You might get him to walk around. You might get everything to have to, everyone to have to bow to him and say he's wonderful. And it'd be so, so good. And the king goes, ah, oh, that's great, Hammond. Could you set that up? And could you make that happen for Mordecai? And of course, Hammond's like, you what? You what? The guy he wants to kill. Suddenly, the king wants everyone to bow down to him. Including including Hammond. He's got, oh, well done, Mordecai. So you can imagine he's not going to say no to the king, right? Because this king is unstable. So it's like, okay. So he's like absolutely gutted. This is it's great. This is box office stuff, right? And um, so then, uh, but remember that, so that's the immediate peril sort of dealt with for, for, Hammond, for Mordecai. But of course, nothing still happened. And that, that day of annihilation is still approaching. So, Esther says, okay, time for another feast. And uh, she lays on another feast. And the king says, look, 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 uh, you know, it's been great having these feasts, but, you know, you have what you want. You can have half my kingdom if you like. Tell me what you want. And she says, well, let me explain. You see that guy over there, Haman? He has issued a law that he, he got you to issue a law that meant that I and all my people will be killed in less than 11 months' time. I'm thinking he's like, yeah, what? And Mordecai as well? What, that guy? Yeah, yeah, him. That, it's, he's, he's, he, he's my cousin. It's all part of that. Experience. So all of a sudden, the king goes from, you know, this volatile guy suddenly he's like, right, okay, we're going to impale Haman, put him up on those gallows. I can see some gallows have been built. I don't know who did that, but let's put him up on that. So lo and behold, Haman is put up on his own gallows. Um, but now they've got a problem. Because you can't disobey the king's edict. And the king's edict said that on that day, everyone can attack the Jews, right? So they can't just, re- you know, because the king's law is kind of, it's not like something you rescind. So they have to figure out, what are we going to do? And they figure out, well, how about we pass a law that says, on that day, anyone who is being attacked, like who is a Jew, has the full ability and rights to fight back. Yeah, that would be a good law. Let's pass that. And so they passed that law to try and, and the king's good with it because he realizes he's been duped by Haman. And lo and behold, that's what happens. So the day comes, people still try to attack them, but they fight back. And Esther, uh, um, in the next chapter, goes to the king and says, do you think we could have an extra day? Because the fight's going quite well, and lo and behold, they have an extra day. And she uses that extra day to really trounce trounce the people who are attacking attacking the Jews. And she also goes out, by the way, and kills... Um, Hammond's ten sons, which is pretty, you know, pretty vicious. I've got to say, you know, remember that point at the start about not everybody's the hero. So she gets pretty vengeful, vengeful, really, with it. Um, and then finally, I should say chapter ten, by the way, just that last bit. Um, finally, what happens is the king says to Mordecai, "John, you come and be my deputy." And it finishes by saying, "I've said the rest is history, right?" What it finishes by saying is Mordecai is held in a lot of respect because people know. 
He looked out for his fellow Jews and he looked out for people who were in trouble. And actually his character that was seen right from the start suddenly means that he's in a place to really do good and be the right-hand person to the fairly unstable king. So that's the story. Realize it goes on quite well. But um, I, 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 um, I guess, you know, you can, you can see lots of, uh, lots, of, lots of things there. There's lots of things there. But the question will be, well, so what? I mean, that's, it's an amazing story, right? So what? What does it mean for us? Well, I'm going to race through a few things that it means, just because I'm conscious of time. So the first thing is this. This is very timely for us, by the way, six weeks out from an election, because this is all about politics. It's about providence taking place in the context of politics. And here's the thing. Even when it's a very toxic and godless culture, and it was, there's a very callous, volatile guy at the top. He's a real despot. God is at work. Now, if God is at work in that kind of politics, how much more is he at work in the kind of politics we have here? God can work in the most amazing places, and he does. Um, this guy called Paul Miller said, uh, you know, is our faith dynamic? You know, should we keep it into the private sphere? But is it dangerous to allow, allow to go into the public sphere? Shouldn't Christians leave the business of government to the world while they try to get on with the real business of saving souls? And after all, isn't government insignificant in the light of eternity? Isn't it useless for changing hearts and a dispiriting effort to organize chaos? It's a good question. Um, Jesus said, of course, didn't he, the meek shall inherit the earth. And uh, I love a quote that he puts in his book. This guy, Paul, puts in his book. He says, yeah, Satan quote. Satan boasts, though. The weak shall inherit nothing, pal. You take Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, I'll take the rest. And uh, you take the church and I'll take the media, the schools, the universities, the business, the government. And actually we can fall into that thinking that, you know, well, we just have to live our good lives as disciples and that's all a very mucky business over there. And, uh, you know, we'd be better off out of it. We're better off not soiling ourselves with all the plots and counterplots and the deception, all the stuff that goes on. In fact... Somebody else said that. This was what um, Hitler said to the pastors in Germany. He said, you know what, I'll protect the people. You take care of the church. You pastors should worry about getting people to have leave this world to me. And we all know how that, that ended up. It probably wasn't the best advice, really, was it? Another quote. This is Tim Farron, who's a, a UK uh, liberal politician. He said, you might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And of course... You'd be right. But there again, so is everything else. So why don't we pray for people who are actually involved and getting stuck in. People like Esther. Because we'll never introduce the kingdom into law, economics, the arts and so on if we don't believe God has any business being there. But he does. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. The story, the salvation story is going to unfold and we must choose to be part of it. Through providence and through us, if we answer his call, we can be part of the story. But either not, either, either, either way, God's purpose will prevail. Remember what Mordecai said. He didn't say, oh, you need to do this because otherwise it's going to be terrible. He said, if you don't get involved, God will find some other way to bring deliverance for his people. And, and that's an amazing statement of faith because he knew there are people of the promise given to Abraham. So he could say that even in the face of genocide, there'll be another way. But actually, you were born for a time of this. Somebody else said something similar to that. 
It's hope to believe the Lord's raised you up for the good of his church, the good of the nation. This was when a guy called William Wilberforce so he, uh, had just become a Christian. And he went to John Newton, a guy secretly, a, a slightly older guy. is the guy who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, a former slave trader. And he went to John and said, uh, you know, oh, I've, just, I've just become a Christian. I'm wondering what I should do in my life. He said, well, you, you, you're there. You're in the House of Commons. You know, you're, you're there as a legislator. And this is what, and John, you know, so important that he said this to him. Because actually 20 years of labor later, slavery had been abolished. Thanks to, thanks to his tireless work and defeat after defeat. And Wilberforce just stuck in there in the world of politics and plugged his way through. So, um, so that was really critical. But ultimately it was a choice, a choice to be part of the story of what was unfolding. Third thing is this. Decisions are made by those who show up. You might know that if you're watching West Wing. It predates that, by the way. It's, a, it's, an, it's an older quote. But um, we never, no one's quite sure who it came from. But the thing is, you can see that in this story, can't you? Esther had to choose to show up. We have to choose to show up. We have to have the courage to take a stand and act at the decisive moment. But the thing is, it's not like it's a solo pursuit. Okay, Esther is in a key place, but she says, I want the whole community to fast and pray. So for all of us, we might not be standing as politicians. We might not be trying to bring God's influence in a political cop party right now. But you know what? We're part of it. We can be part of it. Here's a fourth thing. Don't get taken in by spin. Yeah, that's very easy. Um, Xerxes, the king, he fell for Haman's plot because Haman just came with a wedge issue. He said, you know We've got this bunch of these Jews. They're a bit weird. They're a bit different. They don't really, they don't really fit in, and they're a bit problematic. And I don't think you should tolerate them. So I think we should wipe them out. And it was like he just had a way of trying to divide people. And guess what? Lots of people whose political stars in the ascendancy and worldly governments and worldly oppositions and worldly, what they'll do is they'll try and divide us. They'll try and say, "Hey, you see that group? They're terrible, aren't they? We need to, you know, they're really wronging you." You know, that, 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 that's not good. That can't be allowed to stand. That's what happens. That's what populism is. It looks at a problem and says there's a simple answer. The simple answer is they're at fault. Let's sort it out. So we have to not be easily taken in by that spin. Now, of course, Xerxes was taken in. Why? Well, because basically he didn't really care. He was like, yeah, you can kill them. That's fine. Don't worry about it. It's all right. He wasn't really, he wasn't really paying that much attention. He wasn't really testing the veracity of Hammond's claim. And that's going to be a challenge for us over the next six weeks, by the way. There are going to be all kinds of things that will be claimed. There will be half-truths, there will be spin, there will be counter-spin. And we've got to be a little bit smart and realize where we might be being played, when someone might be trying to, trying to create a wedge, create division, trying to lead us to believe something that might not be the case. We've kind of got to be a bit nuanced about it, a bit thoughtful about the fact that realize that people don't always tell 100% of the truth, and that's the environment we're in. Fifthly, speak up. Being believers, we have, a, we have an obligation and an opportunity to advocate for those without voice and without power. It's often the way that the majority will, tr- will, will actually oppress a minority in this fallen word, world. So there's a real question like whose voice is being heard? Um, the Cause Collective is a, a, a group in South Auckland. They've just started a, a thing called South Auckland Votes. They're not advocating for any political party. What they want is people who are marginalised, the people often who are 
less likely to vote to come out and, and make their voice heard because actually people respond and often it's the people who get the rawest deal in society who find themselves furthest away and don't get around to voting. People know that, politicians know that, and they respond to who they think is most likely to vote. So that's great. Another um, uh, another example here is uh, of this is a guy called Marcus Rashford. He's a footballer who's 22 years old, and he began working with a food waste charity to get foods to kids who are no longer getting free meals during lockdown. Anyway, that it went from 400,000 to 4 million kids that were fed through that. But you realise that actually, even when lockdown had finished, kids get free school meals uh, if they're if they're in the UK if they're at low income, and, and all that happens is that when it comes to holidays, they've got nothing to eat. So it's like actually we could do something about that, and the government said no, absolutely not, fundamentally no, no, absolutely no. Lots of pressure. Government was unmoved. He was very respectful, but he uh, but he was pretty direct. He wrote an open letter. And it really took hold of a whole nation's imagination, changed public sentiment. And one day later, the government caved and changed and said, yeah, okay, sure, we can find some money for that. We can find some money for, for making sure that the poorest children in society don't starve during the holidays, as we're like about the fourth richest nation on earth. But this is what he said, and I loved it because he was, you know, there are lots of people jiving him on Twitter. He said, look, I don't have the education of a politician, but I've lived through this and I've spent time with the families and children most affected. These children matter. This is what Rosemary was saying, right? These children matter. And as long as they don't have a voice, they'll have mine. I mean, what wisdom beyond his years. What an example. Can we say that? As long as these people don't have a voice, they'll have mine. That's actually the call. That's the call. Nearly there. By the way, that's um, if you want to that, that, that paraphrasing Marcus Rashford, you could look at Proverbs 31, which says exactly that. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So I want to stress possibility and paranoia, right? You could take the wrong example from the book of Esther if you just looked at the book of Esther. Because you could say... Politics is a pretty dark place, right? And if you better be careful, because otherwise a really, really bad thing will happen to the people of God. So, you know, you've got to defend against terrible things happening. Now, that is it, it's undeniably what was happening. But it was in the context of, remember, those four things we're looking at with Ezra, with Nehemiah. And actually in those scenarios, the political... the, the outcome of the political process was an amazing opportunity to advance the kingdom of God and to make a difference, a positive difference, actually. So, of course, politics can be threat. There can be threat in there. But equally, the balance is that there's loads of opportunity for us, actually. If we can sway the minds of those who, in this world, are rulers, then it maybe we can create conditions that mean that God can do amazing things. And that's the balance of lesson here. It's like, you know, it's almost like, it's not like it's a, you know, we shouldn't get too par paranoid. Of course, it's a pretty godless time you can read as, as, as we read. But we're not like in a defensive crouch. The problem with being in a defensive crouch, thinking that everyone's out to get us, is all going to be terrible, is that you become very easily manipulated by disinformation and conspiracy theory. Remember what the scripture says. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The kingdom advances even when there are setbacks. Jesus is taking ground across the world and through history. Pick a side, maybe. Now, I don't mean left or right, by the way. So 
there's often the question, oh, if you're a Christian, does that mean you should be more left-wing or should be more right-wing? Well, this is a very instructive uh, verse that helps us with that. There's Joshua, right, who, who definitely thought his, his side were on the right because he's about to go into Jericho and, uh, and a man stands before him with a drawn sword and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And it was an angel and the angel said, neither, he said, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. So Joshua's like, you're on my side, right? You're on my side. Jesus would be on my side. Jesus would vote for my political party. No, 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 no. Are we on his side? Are we on his side? Well, actually, every individual political program manifesto has to be judged as to, is it on Jesus' side? Does it line up with what we see in the scripture? And in truth, it all falls short in different places, right? So the thing you have to do is you have to pick, pick one and try and say, okay, how can I work to reform that? How can we be salt and light and change that? Because actually they're all flawed, different ways. So we won't co-op God onto one side or another. Just like in Old Testament history, in contemporary politics, remember, God is the hero. Not Chris Luxon or Chris Hipkins or any of, anyone else. So put not your trust in princes, you might say, in human beings who cannot save. That's what the psalm says. So what we see from Esther, and I'm going to borrow um, a, a little phrase from, guy, from Tim Keller, who's done an amazing thing, which we didn't talk about today, uh, about Jesus and politics. But what he said is Jesus saves us from two things. He saves us from political complacency, like if Esther had just not bothered, you know, could be the whole lineage of Jesus wiped out. The whole people are destroyed. So we can't be complacent, think we don't need to be involved in politics, right? But he also saves us from political primacy. It's not like politics is a be-all and end-all, because ultimately God is at work and he's bigger than all of that. So whether we're working in a very positive political climate, whether we work in a very challenging political climate, do you know what? His kingdom, the increase of his government, will be no end. So, In conclusion then, we need our eyes opening up to God's purposes playing out in the political sphere. We need to play our part on the side of the kingdom of God, being salt and light, salting all of the choices. The gospel is not party political, but it absolutely is political. Esther shows how amazingly God can work if, like her, we choose to be part of the salvation story in the heat of political lives. Going to finish with uh, two quotes uh, just before we finish. So this is um, this is a guy called Jonathan Bartley, who's who's from a very different political stable to me, but I love what he writes. He says this: the Bible can be a, a great, very real source of comfort and guidance, but for many of us, that's the only way we come to the Bible. Even when the reason is not introspection or self-examination, we read the passage of Scripture. Our first reaction is to relate what we read instantly to our own personal lives in a very individual way. In doing this, however, we're stripping the biblical text of its power by focusing on only one dimension, the personal. The gospel message is being emasculated. He goes on. God does have a vision for how things are going to be changed and a program for how it will be achieved, but that vision has less to do with just revival than we'd like to think, at least not in the way people hope and pray for. The vision God has is more exciting, more powerful and more complete. It's a vision that doesn't just change people's hearts, but changes the way societies are run, economies are structured, and legal systems are organized. It's a political agenda in the fullest sense of the word. 
it's time to rediscover the fullness of the gospel message, the political gospel. The gospel is good news to all of creation, to our hospitals, our prisons, our town halls, our businesses, our rural and our urban environments. Amen to that. This was, um, this was how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. He, he said, we're not just to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And that's why we're called, we're called to compassion, we're called to mercy. But we're actually called to intervene in the world of politics, actually, to make a difference for Jesus. Why don't we stand together?